Welcome to the Big 40, the 40th episode of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm your host, Jason Dubray, um, and we are looking at volume three of the 31 Days of Horror, um, a challenge that uh, guest Scott Lehman uh, put out there. I know there are several of those throughout the month of October, and uh, I've been excited to participate in this October of 2021. Uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, even though this is a monumental episode for the show, unfortunately, some fairly tough watches um, and not necessarily uh, for the right reasons. So this episode is going to cover four themes from 31 Days of Horror, uh, the first one being a low IMDb rating. And so... What's going to happen with the low IMDb rating is I actually found the two lowest rated horror movies on IMDb, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and then I did a double feature with another now infamous movie called Birdemic, Shock and Terror. Things did improve uh, later on. Uh, did I had a day looking at movies featuring Chloe Grace Moretz, an actor I really uh, enjoy. I've seen a lot of her movies. Uh, I decided, even though she's not featured too much in it, to take a look at the remake of Suspiria from uh, 2018. Then the next uh, day was 90s horror, unfortunately. I mean, I love 1990s horror. It is, you know, that's my decade, and that's where I got into reading horror and actually watching more horror movies uh, before that, I was a little too scared to look at that genre. I was only able to see one movie that day, and that movie happened to be uh, The Prophecy um, from 1995, starring uh, Christopher Walken. And the last movie we're going to look at, an interesting horror movie, uh, slasher movie, called Hush. comes from a day looking at the writer-director Mike Flanagan. And uh, for those who don't know who Mike Flanagan is, uh, he's had several really solid horror movies over the years, the most famous and prominent being Dr. Sleep, uh, the adaptation of the Stephen King novel, which was a sequel to The Shining. Um, and I think, you know, uh, not to get into reviewing that, I'll review Dr. Sleep another day, but a, a very underrated film. 
So those are the five I'm, I'm looking at. I do have to kind of warn you that my excitement level uh, wasn't as high for all of these. Uh, there are certainly uh, a couple of them where, which will get uh, positive reviews. But it was kind of a, a rough night for sure taking a look at these two, uh, not even B movies, C movies. Um, and there's reasons that they have low IMDb ratings. Again, I am going to try to find some positives if I if I can. But uh, on the whole, uh, spoilers for the episode. But the, the first two reviews, for sure, and maybe a little bit more, will be more on the negative side, which I don't always like to be. So we will now uh, journey into the low IMDb rated films for the next two reviews. Uh, and then things will steadily improve uh, with the movies we look at in the show. Again, thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate your support. We're almost there, honey. Just a little while longer and your vacation starts. Man, like there's nothing up that road. I could have sworn we didn't make a wrong turn. You must have. Where did the road go? No need to get upset. We'll find it. You know, we should have asked for better directions at the last gas station. Listen, I've never gotten us lost before. Now look, the sign pointed this way. Mike, let's go back to the crossroads and ask those kids we saw. Okay, okay, but I know we can't be wrong. Look, the sign pointed this way. Where did this place come from? It wasn't here a few minutes ago. I don't care. Let's see if we can get some directions. I am Torgo. I take care of the place while the master is away. We only want to know where Valley Lodge is. Which way do we go? There is no way out of here. It will be dark soon. There is no way out of here. No way out? Well, you know, we, we could spend the night here, and then oh, tomorrow my, we could... Oh, I don't want to spend the night here. I don't like the looks of the place. Well, it seems we have no alternative. Well, how about it, Torgo? Can we spend the night here? I'll get the, the luggage. I'll be glad to leave. I've had all of this place I want. Madam, it will be very dangerous to leave now. The master wants you. Wants me? What kind of talk is that? He wants you for his wife. Arise, my wives. Give ear to the words of Manos. Arise, my wives, and hear the will of Manus. Mike, help us. Oh, my God. Manus, God of primal darkness, as thou hast decreed, so have I done. The hands of fate have doomed this man. 
Thy will is done. Manos will be served. First movie I'm looking at is from 1966. It's called Manos, the Hands of Fate. Uh, it's about a family who gets lost on the road and stumbles upon a hidden underground devil-worshipping cult led by the fearsome master and his servant, Torgo. This is a movie that is written and directed by Harold P. Warren and stars Tom Nyman, John Reynolds, and Diane Edelson. And these have to be, I don't know exactly where to start, but we're looking at two of the worst parents in the history of cinema. They're driving along, presumably on a vacation. A nice enough day, but uh, they're, they are traveling with their young daughter, whose lines continually all kind of done and dubbed or in post-production badly. I'm not quite sure what happened here. But she keeps going, I'm cold, mommy. And that's the only line she has probably for the first 20 minutes of the movie. For reasons that I can't begin to understand, they kind of pull off on this side road. Um, they drive by these teenagers who are making out, and this is a kind of a running, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but a running gag that these teenagers keep going to the same spot to make out, and the police keep bothering them and telling them to go somewhere else. And uh, the teenagers are noticed that they're going down this road where there really is nothing. But it turns out there is something. They come across this house, and they know that they're lost, and thought, well, maybe we can stay here for the night. Nothing more comforting than this abandoned house. And then in a performance that I, I just, I, I simply could not possibly understand, this actor John Reynolds, who plays Torgo, comes out, and he cannot walk or speak properly. Uh, he appears to be drunk. Um, there's no evidence that the character himself is drunk. I don't know if the actor was drunk to get through the filming of this movie or what the story was. But this is not somebody that you would kind of go, oh, okay, can uh, you just let us stay for the night and also take our daughter inside and take our luggage and everything's going to be fine. And he himself, Torgo, is warning, Master's not going to like it. That there's a child here, master's not going to like it. All pretty clear hints that this is not the right place uh, to be. And then, of course, bad things start to happen. Strange things in this house to this couple. There's something wrong with this little girl. She immediately collapses on a couch and then she just kind of lays there and doesn't make a sound. It's really kind of frightening and they don't particularly check on her at any point other than to wake her up and she says, Mom, I'm cold again. And when bad things start happening, again, as is seems to be the way in these movies, then it is uh, usually the, the wife who notices them. The wife is named Margaret, played by Dan Diane Edelson. And she points out to her husband, Michael, played by Harold P. Warren, that things are not, well, weird things are happening. And he immediately dismisses it as, it's just your imagination. Five seconds later, creepy things start to happen right before his eyes. The idea like, oh, it's just your imagination makes no sense whatsoever. And then as the movie goes along, of course, we see the ultimate danger who is the master, played by Tom Nyman with a 
it's 1960s, but as a 1980s creepy mustache and just kind of holds out his arms with this rather elaborate costume he has on. And we are supposed to be frightened. And he has a whole harem of uh, women who are his wives. And from gathering what happens, I think uh, the idea is that he's wanting to get Margaret as another wife. Um, and that's kind of the plan, but the fact that there's a little girl there, plus the family dog, who is spoilers for the movie, but is hurt and killed in a very unceremonious manner. And then, of course, the parents completely deal with it in the, the opposite way that they should. So what I'm left with is a movie which is not very long, one hour and 10 minutes, so 70 minutes long, and it is like watching paint dry. In the last episode, I was complaining about the pace of White Zombie. White Zombie is a Jerry Bruckheimer-produced movie directed by Michael Bay compared to Manos, The Hands of Fate. I didn't even laugh. I couldn't have a good time with it. And that's kind of the, the going to be the divider, I suppose. Not much of a divider between the two bad movies, like legitimately bad movies that I take a look at in this episode. I had a, maybe for not the right reasons, but I got some more entertainment and some laughs out of Birdemic, which I'm going to talk about fairly soon. Uh, I got no joy out of Manos. It was something I just kind of had to put up with. And it's a long 70 minutes. I don't know who on earth I would recommend this to if you want to challenge yourself as a moviegoer and watch something which is just plain bad, then by all means, go ahead. I believe it's it's now actually down to a 1.8 out of 10 IMDb rating. I think it was a, something in 2.1 when I was last looking at it. It is a bad movie. So if you want to roll the dice for 70 minutes, go for it. But I cannot, in good conscience, recommend Manos, The Hands of Fate. It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. So, now you got a big payday with a big stock option, huh? Yeah, I earned it. All those big deals I did with NCT. And millions of dollars of revenues and sales. Well, you've done a great job, Rod. Meet Rod. Hi. A young software salesman on his way to achieving his Silicon Valley dream. Think about opening up a green tech company. Really? Meet Natalie, a beautiful young fashion model driven by passion. I remember you now. You were my English class. I was. Yeah. So how come you never made a pass at me in school? Throw true love into the equation and anything is possible. I was wondering if we can keep in contact. Sure. How big was the sale? One million dollars. In other news today, the population of polar bears is declining rapidly. Hi, my name is Jerry Owens. I'm from Solar Power Accessories. This morning, flocks of seagulls and crows were found dead in downtown San Jose and along Highway 101. Hey, I thought I told you to stand back. These birds are contaminated. The crows and seagulls also caused an accident on Highway 101. Authorities are investigating the cause of their death. Rod, let's get out of here.
birds, they're not the dangerous animal. It's a human species that's a dangerous, menacing, and terrifying animal. do something like that? I mean, why, why would they just attack? I don't know. Okay, I suppose if I wanted to have an issue with Birdemic, Shock and Terror, I would say that it's longer. It's an hour 45 minutes, which uh, Manos was at least short, but actually Birdemic moves faster. But it's it, I'm sorry, it is brutal. Uh, uh, even just looking at the IMDb webpage right now, it, it says from visionary writer-director James Nugan. And even the, uh, the, the title sequence has problems. I believe he used the term supporting casts before listing off the majority of uh, the actors um, in the movie during this, this credit sequence. I was prepared. I mean, I, this is a low-budget, independent movie made in Northern California. Looks like friends got together over several weekends and made this, and I can appreciate that. I mean, certainly I have friends who are uh, low-budget indie horror filmmakers. Um, so I don't want to be as hard on it as it seems like the world has been to uh, this film, uh, which came out in 2010, now so 11 years old, and it has a whole series of sequels, which I'm not too excited to uh, to visit, um, but maybe, who knows, maybe I will see them someday. Essentially, a horde of mutated birds descend upon the quiet town of Half Moon Bay, California. Uh, they don't really do this until about a half an hour into the film, as we slowly, slowly get to know our main characters in sequences that are just don't, again don't make sense or badly filmed badly edited i'm not going to blame the actors i think they actually are maybe uh, the stronger part of this particular movie unlike uh, manos where the acting was just awful just brutal just nothing to it but this i think the actors are doing their best to try to make uh nugent's script work in some way these mutated birds descend upon Half Moon Bay, and the death toll apparently is rising, and then there's two citizens who manage to fight back, but are they going to be able to survive the birdemic? Da-da-da. I don't know. It's This is a love story as well. Alan Bay plays Rod, who works for some sort of financial corporation and ends up having a string of good luck, and he just randomly runs into Whitney Moore playing Natalie, uh, who was somebody you went to high school with and was obviously very pro popular. And uh, turns out that she's a fashion model. And so he, uh, as you do, stalks her down the street and forces his way into her life. And she doesn't appear to mind that. And at the time that they meet, while well, he has success at work, uh, she lends a contract uh, being an independent model, uh, all of a sudden as uh, a cover girl, I think for Victoria's Secret, just completely out of nowhere. Then the two go on a date and they find out they like each other and, uh, you know, Rod is respectful of her and doesn't try to sleep with her on the first date. So I guess that's good enough for them to have a uh, long-term relationship. So we're kind of following their journey and they're on the beach one day 
when they see uh, absolutely the worst, I don't, I can't even call it CGI, but computer generated birds. And then we start to see just, just a series of would-be action sequences where a group of people are just basically trying to survive after uh, Rod and Natalie go to a hotel and consummate their relationship about an hour or so into the film. Then this bird attack starts to happen and then they out of nowhere team up with this other couple that just happen to be at the same motel and they go on a journey trying to shoot down these birds and the birds of course are too smart for them in places. Uh, They come across a situation where they rescue two little kids and the kids go along and then they take several kind of stops to get supplies at various convenience stores. There's a lot of shots of kind of what I would imagine are local businesses who are connected to the filmmaker, kind of friends of the production type of thing. And this leads to this anticlimactic would-be end to the film where things just kind of work themselves out. I mean, there's a little bit of blood and gore to it. Uh, You can see everything about it. It it does kind of look like a student film, something somebody who's like starting out in film school is doing as a project. And it, you know, if you take it as that, I'm not going to be too hard on him about that. But the fact that he's been marketing it as that he's a visionary director, I'm afraid that vision is pretty off-centered. So I don't know if it's an inflated sense of uh, ability at this point, but work needs to be done for him. As a filmmaker, I'm not going to fault him for having no budget and using friends and whatever locations he has uh, for this. But this one is another tough watch. I don't know if it's more of a, a... uh curio i suppose for people who are wanting to see like could this movie be that bad this is one and i i suppose manos could be could work this way too is these maybe are two movies that would be candidates for mystery science theater 3000 an episode with that kind of commentary i think potentially that could be entertaining but the movies themselves are no doubt are bad as it stands right now similar kind of 1.8 out of 10 imdb rating for birdemic when i initially looked at it i think it was 2.2 maybe i think it was half a notch ahead of uh of, of manos both movies are pretty tough so as far as once again kind of looking at the acting story and scariness getting back to manos for a moment i would give it zero for acting i will give it a generous five for story and five for scariness and Birdemic again going for a similar number of points for generosity sake let's say I'm going to give five for acting those actors are trying their best five for story I could see with a budget and more experience as a filmmaker how this could be an interesting apocalyptic movie I mean obviously very much trying to copy Hitchcock's The Birds it's even in Northern California as The Birds was set it is not The Birds that's uh, for sure again when we end up totaling them I, I gave 10 points maybe a generous 10 points to both films check out those two if you dare but now we're going to be moving into three professionally made films at the beginning she gave me things perfect balance perfect sleep she wants to get inside of me I can feel her When you dance the dance of another, 
You make yourself in the image of its creator. I feel like I'm not even here yet. The damn blank's incredible. One, two, three. The way she transmits her work. You have to decide. What is it you want to be for this company? There's more in that building than what you can see, Doctor. Dangerous people. Three muscles. Three God. Three Devil. Muscle Tenebrarum. Muscle Lacrimarum. And Muscle Suspiriorum. Darkness. Tears. <laughs> and sighs. some kind of deal with them. suppose I haven't really gotten on board with like those Jalo films, which are the horror movies that were done in with actors from all over the world, but is dubbed into different languages. Uh, again, the horror version of the Spaghetti Western. The Spaghetti Western has grown on me for some reason. I don't mind it as much. I can sort of get by the bad voice dubbing. But I haven't been able to do that as much. But uh, Dario Argento is the master of that particular genre. And I did see the 1970s version of Suspiria, not that long ago, actually, for the first time. And so I knew that, uh, again, celebrating just a, a terrific kind of, I don't know if Scream Queen is the right word for Chloe Grace Moretz, but she's an interesting actor. She doesn't exclusively do horror movies, but most of her filmography has been in horror movies and she has a terrific kind of opening scene in 2018 version of Suspiria. This one is directed by Luca Guadagnino and if you don't know about Suspiria even though the two versions are quite different the first notable the most notable thing is running time. I think it was maybe an hour and a half for the original Suspiria. This remake is two and a half hours long. There's points when it feels that way. Uh, there are some exciting sequences, and I just kind of try to relax into uh, the time frame for it. But I think it could be tightened up for sure, and there's some things that could be cut from the movie, and we wouldn't necessarily lose anything. In this version, a darkness swirls at the center of a world-renowned dance company, one that will engulf the artistic director, an ambitious young dancer, and a grieving psychotherapist. Some will succumb to the nightmare, others will finally wake up and as far as the differences i think the you know the argento suspiria focuses a lot more on the dance studio which uh again spoilers is made up of a coven of witches 
And um, this one like spread out among kind of three lead characters. So after Chloe Grace Moretz kind of uh, leaves the film, we're left with a pretty impressive cast. And I mean, I think that's that's the strength of Suspiria, even though I don't think I like it as much as the original. I don't dislike it, but I don't necessarily like it. Lead character, this young dancer coming from a very conservative uh, Bible Belt part of the United States to Berlin is. Dakota Johnson, who's playing Susie. Dakota Johnson, who is the daughter of Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith. Uh, infamous for the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. I have never seen a Fifty Shades of Grey movie. I don't know if there's some baggage connected to that, which maybe has affected her career. I don't think she's bad in this film. She carries it well enough. She's not the best actor in the company, but she doesn't sink the ship. And then we have Tilda Swinton. And Tilda Swinton appears as both the male older male psychiatrist and kind of the head teacher at this dance school. I'm, I'm not completely sure why they decided to do this. Uh, to Swinton's credit, and Swinton's an amazing actor for sure, I didn't recognize Swinton as this as this psychiatrist until second or third scene. And it turns out this character wasn't really a factor in the original, and I guess this would be the section that would be cut out if you were to stay a little bit more faithful to the original. Had, had a patient who was Chloe Grace Moretz has Patricia and starts to look at her writings, which are kind of put aside as being as her experiencing psychosis and starts to investigate it further and starts to investigate this uh, dance company learn some things from it we get to know this character really well he's a widower and uh, kind of deep in grief and kind of goes away to his country home on the weekend and certainly kind of the backdrop of a divided Germany with the uh, Berlin Wall uh, all of that is, is is certainly a factor I think the setup's good and well-made well film I would say again the acting and just the production on the whole is probably a leap up from the original but yeah there's something about the original that is scarier is tighter and i think in some odd way makes more sense the third act of the remake and i i wouldn't i wouldn't you know, kind of steer away from watching Suspiria 2018 again, and maybe some things will kind of click a little bit more, but the third act is basically revealing a huge plot twist, which I won't reveal here, but it is almost incomprehensible. I mean, and I don't mind that. I mean, I've said many times on the podcast, I'm a fan of David Lynch, but what we're kind of left with at the end is like this rather over the top loud scene that adds up to this one kind of payoff. And then we kind of move on with our lives and I thought given how strong the first act of the film was that it just kind of left me unsatisfied there's a real divide I think more people dislike this movie than than like it I would say it'd be like a mild thumbs down for me I guess you know maybe in a two and a half star place I can see it's good points but I can also see why there are some people that have a problem with it and I I, I do know that you know unfortunately for whatever reason that the running time is a big barrier for some people that want to watch a a witchy horror movie that is a tight hour and a half and then move on with their lives. And this is a bit more of a time commitment. I think there was some ambition to the screenplay and to this filmmaker's vision, but I'm not sure it's completely pays off. But I, I wouldn't steer anybody away from seeing Suspiria. It does bring the blood and gore. There's some really tough scenes to watch, uh, like limbs breaking, and there's a lot of red. So for horror movie fans looking 
asking for that. I think you'll be happy with that part. But overall, this was a breath of fresh air compared to the previous two movies I had watched, but still not as good as a few of the movies that I've watched earlier in uh, the 31 days of October. So overall, acting, strong 15 for acting. I think acting is the strongest part. I'm going to give a 10 for story. I could see what they were trying to do. Scariness and some of the numbers for scariness are inflated because the first two movies just simply weren't scary at all. I'm giving 13 for Suspiria for scariness. Mary. What? Can you keep a secret? The biggest secret ever. Centuries ago, a second coming was foretold. What did he say to you, Mary? He asked if I could keep a secret. What was that? Something he gave me. But what's coming? He wants something. Something that's here. Isn't what anyone expects. Oh, my God. It's a war in heaven. Over what? Us. Humans. Christopher Walken, The Prophecy. moving on to a movie I've always been curious about and it's just I have not been able to see from Dimension Films in 1995 some of these actors were just so hot in the 1990s some of them for multiple decades we have of course Christopher Walken the great Christopher Walken 70s 80s 90s any decade uh, he's a welcome presence in the movie, and he really is. And I know there are several sequels to The Prophecy. I think he he's kind of the guy who holds it together. Yet it's interesting how he's not really the central character in uh, the movie. The central character is played by a Canadian actor, Elias Coteas, who I'm not sure is capable of giving a bad performance. He is really, really good as a almost a priest who is now an L.A. homicide detective. And just the wonderful Virginia Madsen is in this, this small town teacher on a on an Indian reservation in New Mexico. And yeah, this wasn't maybe her greatest role of all time. I, I like her in movies like Candyman and certainly Sideways brought her career back for a little bit. But I'm always happy that, to see Virginia Madsen in a movie. So good cast. Also featuring some other really well-known Eric Stoltz coming a year after Pulp Fiction. Plays an angel named Simon. Amanda Plummer. Again, she got lots of work. She was also in Pulp Fiction. Got lots of work in the 90s. Plays Rachel. Get to her uh, shortly. Adam Goldberg. Young Adam Goldberg is a character named Jerry. Both Rachel and Jerry are characters who are controlled by uh, Christopher Walken playing uh, the angel Gabriel. And then we uh, we get to see some other exciting actors. Viggo Mortensen. I won't say what role he's playing for those who haven't seen this movie, which is now 26 years old. But um, again, it's 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 kind of cool to see him before he hit it big. The plot for the prophecy is at the scene of a rather bizarre murder. L.A. homicide detective Thomas Daggett, and uh, played by Elias, Elias Coteus, discovers a lethal heavenly prophecy now being fulfilled on Earth. In his fight to stop the forces of evil, he finds an unlikely ally in an elementary school teacher played by Virginia Madsen. 
and they are essentially trying to stop Gabriel from getting, in a kind of complicated way, the soul of a deceased soldier. And that soul has been passed on to a little girl. Little girl is named Mary and is played in a rather good role by Mariah Shining Dove Snyder. She's obviously one of the elementary school students, so that's why Virginia Madsen is trying to protect her. And her interaction with Eric Stoltz's Simon affects her life deeply. I, I appreciate, I suppose, the theology or the, the different religions in the film. It treats Catholicism in a serious manner. It also takes a look at indigenous spirituality and, and ceremony in, a, I think, a respectful way, not in the atypical Hollywood way that it would be used. I mean, sure, uh, I think I would still be arguing that most of the characters kind of leading the action of the film are Caucasian. And so that's maybe an unfortunate aspect of the use of an indigenous community. And the indigenous young girl is given a prominent role, but not as as much other uh, characters um, in the film. Christopher Walken, you know, he used to be a guy who would really kind of scare me in movies. And I, I guess I was looking for the darker Christopher Walken of the 90s. And I was still kind of seeing the the showman, the, you know, kind of the winking at the camera comedian. While he's supposed to be the big bad in the movie, I, I didn't find him necessarily as scary as Viggo Mortensen, for example. But it's an interesting battle kind of between him and Elias Coteas. I think getting to some of my criticisms. I think one of the bigger sins in the movie is Amanda Plummer, and I know she she operates in uh, hyper speed, especially at this time. If you would see her in Pulp Fiction and Needful Things and several movies throughout the '90s, she is a wildfire. But if you have Amanda Plummer in your movie, and at this point she was a known a known quantity, uh, a known figure in in films. If you have her in your movie, use her. She's essentially dying in a hospital and is brought back to life by Gabriel just to help drive him to where the climax of the movie happens. And then, uh, spoilers, but unceremoniously gets killed off. And that's all there is to her character. Adam Goldberg, you know, kind of following a similar type of role, is given a lot more time and a lot more layers with his character. So I think that's just kind of a, a missed opportunity there to use Amanda Plummer properly. I Again, to, you know, I often reference Rankin Review and uh, Larry Parsons' show. Please check it out. When Larry and I did the best movies of the 1990s, Larry did put uh, The Prophecy on his list. I went in, I guess, with higher expectations than maybe I, I, I should have had. I still had a good time with it, but to me, it's kind of a three-star review where I, I I would be happy to revisit it. It didn't offend me in any way. I would say on the whole, it's pretty good. It does follow a little bit of a formula. There are kind of some played up 90s, 1990s touches to, to the film, which makes it feel a little bit less organic in its uh, horror, I suppose. But great locations for it. It came from Dimension Films. Again, very much uh, connected to the uh, Weinstein folks at that time who were riding high and this was kind of connected to their horror division and again i think i'm a christopher walken fan i don't think i could i don't think i could see a situation where where i'm upset about any of these actors 
And I think it was a good movie that was darn close to being great. Giving the acting 15, acting impressive, terrific cast. Again, just Amanda Plummer does what she can with the character she's given. But I I think more could have been done. Story-wise, 15. I think it's a solid story. And scariness, it didn't scare me, unfortunately. It has some creepy scenes and it brings some some blood and gore for sure. But again, it takes a lot to scare me. And uh, Suspiria actually had a couple just a notch more scariness to it so 12 points for the prophecy for scariness but i think if you're curious about a mid-1990s religious horror movie i think it'd be worth checking out For my last review, we're taking a look at the writer-director Mike Flanagan, and I'm a, a, a big fan of Dr. Sleep. It didn't do well at the box office. Uh, I think that's a shame. Uh, both the director's cut and the theatrical cut are pretty darn close to being masterpieces. I mean, yeah, it's not Kubrick's The Shining, but I think it's quite true to Stephen King's novel, which Kubrick's The Shining, of course, wasn't very much at all, and just features uh, some good performances. And it's just, you can see he's a visionary director. And so I, again, I haven't seen a whole lot of his films. I have heard from other people that... He hasn't made a bad movie to this point. And Hush is a 2016 film that he wrote with Kate Siegel, who is the lead actor. And it's about a deaf and mute uh, writer who retreats into the woods to live a solitary life, escape an old boyfriend and that kind of thing. And she finds herself in a situation where she has to fight for her life in total silence when a mass killer appears at her window. This is just, uh, it was refreshing in some ways because it was a straight up slasher film. It created an interesting protagonist, independent minded, somebody who will fight back, a female who is driving uh, a horror movie story, which is which is really, really nice. 
and a character that you're cheering for and becomes basically a cat and mouse battle between a character called the man who appears masked and we're thinking we're getting into kind of a second rate Michael Myers or perhaps scream type of thing, but really kind of ditches the mask early on. And then we full on see the face of this guy who just obviously gets some sort of sick pleasure out of stalking, torturing, and ultimately killing women. And yeah, I I, I guess, I, you know, I'm always, this is like a, a bit of a two-sided argument here that I wrestle with myself. The man really has no motivation to do this. And so sometimes I'm kind of wondering about you know, what is this guy's backstory and, and why is he doing this? And maybe is is Flanagan making a point about toxic masculinity with this film and saying like he's just called the man and this is how men historically have made many women feel without reason, just invading their security and their safety of, of in this case, of this woman's home. Maybe there's an argument for that and maybe it makes it that much scarier that this guy appears to have no motivation to do what he does. And he just enjoys torturing this this woman. And I think in lesser hands, um, Maddie could be a victim. But Maddie is not a victim. She uses all of her capabilities to fight back. And it is a true battle from beginning to end. We have a few kind of secondary characters we have a neighbor who stops by early on who checks in on Maddie and is uh, friendly with her. And you can probably predict what happens to her. And then later on, her uh, husband or boyfriend comes by to check in and has a, a really, really terrific scene with the man. I don't want to spoil too much about it, but the man comes up with a really interesting tactic for uh, handling John, who is uh, played by Michael Trucco, who comes by and and feels a little bit like somebody else who's going to be able to, to help Maddie. But if you've seen as many slasher movies as I have, you kind of know it's not going to be that simple to get out of this situation. I loved this movie. This was easily, hands down, the best movie of the five that we're talking about. You can watch it on Netflix. It's only an hour and 22 minutes, so it is a tight film again no scene is wasted no time is wasted in the movie it is well well worth your time i'd be happy to revisit it again and i think this shows a range of mike flanagan who can make a tight slasher movie in an hour and 22 minutes and then can go and make a three-hour adaptation of a stephen king novel and a sequel to basically a 1980s hands down horror classic which no matter what you do you're kind of setting yourself up for failure and he does not fail with the two movies I have seen that he has directed. I am very excited to see Mike Flanagan. I know he's done uh, some recent TV work, Midnight Mass, which is on Netflix right now, uh, The Haunting of Hill House. But I also, I and uh, yeah, just a correction, I have seen Ronan directed Gerald's Game, which was viewed as one of those unfilmable Stephen King novels. And man, is that that that's another one with taking kind of a one location, much like in Hush, and turning it into just 
a, a subtle masterpiece. So this is a filmmaker of the future. This is a guy to watch. I will watch anything that Mike Flanagan's involved with. I would like him to do uh, some more feature length films because I think he's very talented in that way. I know there's big money in, in TV shows and anthology shows right now, but it will, I'm excited and I will be happy to uh, check out his next film. Hush, uh, again, maybe spreading the points around Hush, 15 for acting. I do want to give prompts to one of the cast members who I've kind of not talked about yet, an actor named John Gallagher Jr., who I didn't recognize at all. He, I most knew him from a, a wonderful HBO TV show called The Newsroom, uh, where he plays a very, very likable character. And here he's such a monster. And somehow, I mean, it's not makeup effects or anything. He just appears to be a completely different human being and that's a real notch in his cap as an actor and I, I really like like what Kate Siegel does with the character I suppose there's one sequence where we do actually hear her voice I could have done without uh, I know why it's there but maybe a little bit of a notch on the screenplay I, if it had been a completely silent performance uh, I think that would have been uh, amazing story-wise Again, 15, I mean, it, it is a slasher movie. If you've seen a slasher movie, one slasher movie, while there's different varieties, we can probably see a little bit of the formula in here, yet you don't care because this is so, handled so well on all fronts by everybody involved with Hush that if there are some, some little story slip-ups here or whatever, and I know this is not the first movie that will have either a character who is uh, hearing impaired or visually impaired involved with a slasher situation and is kind of in a survival type of mode. This is definitely one of the better ones I've seen. And scariness. I think there's enough scares in this movie. It gave me what I wanted here. I, I'm giving 20 for scares. And I mean, that's where kind of I'm kind of justifying that this is definitely the best of the five movies I'm talking about in, in this show. So I would highly recommend if you are a horror fan that you check out Hush. And again, make sure it's the 2016 Hush. There is another movie uh, starring Jessica Lange from I believe the 1990s. Also called Hush, uh, but you can find Hush on, on Netflix. And check out the works of Mike Flanagan. He's a talented filmmaker. Why are you doing this, Gabriel? The vault was mine. I bowed no human in heaven. But the word. No one hears the word anymore. No one without the word. There's only the argument. I'll not step aside. I will not allow any talking monkey to take my place. I'll burn down heaven to stop it. I'm so tired of this war. Reject the lie, Simon. Join us. Help us make it like it was before the monkeys. You remember? We cast out Lucifer's army. You and I, we threw their rebel thrones from the wall. They wanted to be gods. I don't want to be a god, Simon. I just want to make it like it was. Before the lie. Loved us best. Oh, Gabriel. When was it that you lost your grace? I'd like to help you, old friend. But I can't. I'm not sure who's right, who's wrong, but it doesn't matter. Sometimes you just have to do what you're told. That's who we are. You know, the great thing about a conversation like this, 
Thank you for round three of uh, this 2021 31 Days of Horror solo series on my show here. This is the 40th episode. Time's flying as far as getting 40 out there. And I know this wasn't maybe the top-notch uh, group of five here, but I think there's some interesting stuff in three of these that are the majority of people will get something out of. The other two, very, very niche audience or accompanied by the commentary of uh, a show like Mystery Science Theater 3000. As I said earlier in the show, Manos, The Hands of Fate from 1966 earned zero for acting, five for story and five for scariness for a total of 10. Birdemic, Shock and Terror gets five for acting. The acting was much better in that, but still not great, but still trying to save the movie. A generous five for story, zero scariness. This is not a scary movie. You're going to be laughing a lot more than you would be frightened with Birdemic. All right. If you want to see a scary bird movie, still I'd go back and see Hitchcock's The Birds. But low budget filmmaker, and I can forgive a lot because of that, but it isn't a great movie. I Unfortunately, I just, or fortunately, unfortunately, I, I just can't lie to you about, about that. All right. Then we start to get into... More professional territory. I hate to say, be mean to those other films, but 2018 remake of Suspiria. I prefer the uh, Dario Argento version of it. Some people may not because of the dubbing and kind of some of the weird over the top acting that happens in that one. This one, improvement on acting and overall filmmaking quality, I suppose. It looks like a 21st century movie, which it is, but still kind of left me unsatisfied. It takes a few different directions uh, from the original. That's fine with me. Uh, I wasn't that in love with the original, but just left me kind of unsatisfied, I guess. Uh, acting, I'm giving 15 to uh, story. Uh, They're trying to do something a little bit different to give credit for that, but very muddled third act, unfortunately. So 10 for story and uh, 13 for scariness. There are a couple really creepy scenes in there, so I maybe I'm sounding sound a little bit harsh on it. Just not as scary as some of the other movies I've looked at uh, this month. Uh, the Prophecy for the 90s Horror Day. Seems like kind of a formulaic 90s movie, but a solid religious horror movie. Has some interesting ideas, terrific cast, a very likable cast. Some missed opportunities along the way, particularly involving uh, the use of Amanda Plummer. But acting-wise, I'm giving it 15. Story, 15 as well. And yeah, I think it was kind of up there. I think it was trying to, it was maybe the most ambitious screenplay of the five movies that uh, we're looking at. Suspiria was ambitious, but a little bit... Had a few misfires. And scariness factor, I wasn't that scared. I'm giving it 12. Kind of inflated for scariness because two of the movies are just not scary at all, as I've said before. Uh, so total of 42. Hush, this was my favorite of the five movies. 15 for acting. I guess there's some over-the-top stuff that happens, but it serves the story, and I think it does a good job. So I'd say three of the five movies are, are well-acted uh, for this episode. 15 for story. Not the most original, but very well-handled. Just a couple scenes I might have done differently, but I don't think there was anything to me that was a glaring problem with uh, the story and screenplay. And scariness, I'm giving it the most points for scariness, 20 points. So not surprising to anybody, the most points goes to Hush with 50, uh, The Prophecy uh, with 42, and 38 for Suspiria. Then both Manos, The Hands of Fate, and Birdemic, Shock and Terror, 
each got a generous 10 points from me. Typically the 40th, every 10 episodes is a kind of a half of the movies are eliminated. In this case, five movies. And very obviously those two would be easily shed from my shelf. I don't see myself revisiting these movies ever again. But again, if you want to check them out or any one of these, there's nothing offensive, I don't think, with any of them. So it was an interesting, but maybe not the best group of five that I'm going to be talking about. I think we're going to be looking at some better movies as uh, as we progress uh, through the month of October. And likely these episodes will kind of go into the month of November as well as I... Uh, continue to watch and then record episodes throughout the month here. So thank you again for listening to the show. And before I go, as always, please check out Film Feast podcast uh, that Matt Bledsoe puts out. Also, A Lifetime of Hallmark. Kurt Fitzpatrick's the co-host of that one. And of course, Rank and Review, Larry Parsons' uh, horror movie podcast. He's on a bit of a hiatus right now, but there should be some uh, new episodes coming in 2022. But you can go back and listen to old episodes and you're going to get a lot of interesting information about horror, fantasy, and basically all movies from his show. Until then, please keep safe and continue to be kind to one another. Take care.